Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In today's episode of the China Power Podcast, we will discuss the historic and strategic dimensions of the China-Russia relationship. The China-Russia strategic relationship is among the world's most fraught and influential. China's own socialist revolution, which resulted in the 1949 establishment of the People's Republic of China, was both inspired and supported by the Soviet Union. Yet, by the late 1950s, ideological and other tensions permeated Sino-Russian relations, resulting in the Sino-Soviet split that would define the two countries' relationships for the next decades. In 1989, the two countries normalized their relations and in 2001 signed the Treaty of Good Neighborliness and Friendly Cooperation between the People's Republic of China and the Russian Federation. In recent years, China and Russia's strategic goals have converged significantly and the two countries have developed stronger relations. In 2013, Russian President Vladimir Putin declared intent to construct a special relationship with China. A year later, the two nations would reach key energy and trade agreements in Shanghai during Putin's first official visit to China after Xi Jinping emerged to power as China's new leader. In 2019, China and Russia agreed to upgrade relations to a comprehensive strategic partnership for cooperation in the new era, focused on developing economic, political, and educational coordination. These growing strategic ties between China and Russia and personal ties between Xi and Putin have long alarmed observers in the United States and elsewhere. And some experts have argued that closer military relations between the two countries will represent a fresh and rising challenge. What can history teach us about the Sino-Russian relationship today? What were the strengths and weaknesses in Sino-Soviet relations? Here to discuss these questions and more is Dr. Joseph Turigian, Assistant Professor at American University's School of International Service and a Wilson Center Global Fellow. Dr. Turigian studies historical elements of authoritarianism in China and Russia, both nations' elite politics and Sino-Russian foreign relations. Additionally, he is the author of the upcoming book, Prestige, Manipulation, and Coercion, Elite Power Struggles in the Soviet Union in China After Stalin and Mao. Dr. Turigian was previously a Stanton Nuclear Security Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, a postdoctoral fellow at Princeton-Harvard's China and the World Program, a postdoctoral fellow at MIT's Center for International Security and Cooperation, and a Fulbright Scholar at Fudan University in Shanghai. So Joseph, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. To start off, I want to ask you about the historical context of China-Russia relations. Looking back at the Cold War period, how influential was the Soviet Union in shaping Russia in the early days of the People's Republic? What did Sino-Soviet cooperation look like at its peak? And how deep did that cooperation extend? So coincidentally, the year that Xi Jinping was born was the year that Mao launched this campaign to comprehensively study the Soviet Union. And the most common slogan that we saw in the Chinese press that year was the Soviet Union of today is our tomorrow. That was the year that the Soviet Union and China came to an agreement that ultimately would lead to Moscow assisting with 156 uh, major industrial enterprises. Uh, ultimately, uh, 11,000 specialists would visit China uh, from the Soviet Union between 1954 and 1958. 
This was an exceptionally close relationship for many years. During crises in Hungary and Poland in 1956, Mao was a big supporter of Khrushchev's choices, which was crucial at that moment. In 1957, when a group of members of the Presidium moved against Khrushchev and tried to remove him from power, when Khrushchev emerged triumphant, Mao came out and said that uh, Khrushchev was correct, which was a key for uh, Khrushchev, and afterwards to thank the Chinese. Khrushchev promised to uh, help with the Chinese missile program as well as their nuclear weapons program. Uh, there were limitations, of course. Uh, China provided cheap food, rare minerals, and hard currency for that support. There were always some cultural tensions between the Soviet specialists and the Chinese. Uh, it was hard for uh, many of those Soviets to live in, in China, given the uh, economic situation at the time. But ultimately, it was a huge help to the first five-year plan for the People's Republic of China. And Chen Yun, one of the major leaders in China during the 1980s, uh, described this as really was uh, assistance and uh, credited to proletarian friendship uh, from the Soviet Union. So Joseph, it seems like what you're saying is that in the 1950s, China had deep all across the board cooperation with the Soviet Union, cooperation politically, economically and militarily. Uh, that's correct. Uh, and then we started to see some incipient signs of trouble in 1956 and, and 1957 over the evaluation of Stalin, uh, whether communists could come to power peacefully in other countries and how to characterize ex peaceful coexistence uh, with the West. But through late 1957, those differences were managed effectively and they tried to, to work through those problems. Uh, in 1958, Khrushchev proposed to China that they establish a joint fleet uh, of nuclear submarines, which Mao saw as insulting and inimical to China's interests. Uh, and then later that year, Mao shelled islands off the coast of the PRC, which created uh, a nuclear crisis uh, with the United States before warning the Soviet Union that he was going to do that, which, which Khrushchev saw as deeply troubling for Moscow-Beijing relations. Uh, then in 1959, the Soviet Union was uh, essentially neutral during some skirmishes between China uh, and India. Khrushchev also criticized China's behavior in Tibet for causing an uprising and then harshly ending it. And then also Khrushchev was improving relations with the United States in a way that China found deeply problematic. Did ideological differences play a role in any of these events? You know, in terms of ideology, one of the things that made Mao Zedong so interesting as a leader was that whenever there were tactical differences, policy differences, he had a habit of looking for deeper reasons and finding ideological origins in them. So when he saw Khrushchev behaving in this way, he believed that there was something deeply wrong with the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, something that he called revisionism. And part of the battle between Beijing and Moscow over power within the communist bloc was fought on the ideological front. So it increasingly took on this ideological hinge that made it harder for the two sides to negotiate. And then in 1962, Mao thought that China was moving in the wrong direction during the rectification of the Great Leap Forward, that people were not acting with enough attention to class struggle, and he tied that to calls within the elite to 
better relations with the Soviet Union, all of which led to, by the end of that year, a renewed interest in class struggle that saw more radicalism at home and tougher relations against the Soviet Union. And then two years later, in 1964, territorial elements to the relationship also became problematic when Mao essentially uh, torpedoed uh, negotiations to, to find uh, an agreement to the territorial border. By 1969, uh, there were serious clashes uh, on the Sino-Soviet border. We're still not entirely sure why in March of 1969, uh, China twice ambushed Soviet forces. Some people think that it was because Mao saw a real Soviet threat. Some people think that it was because that he wanted to mobilize the population to achieve unity after years of uh, chaos during the Cultural Revolution, but the Soviets were certainly shocked. We now have the GRU, that's Soviet military intelligence documents from this year, and there is absolutely no sign that they thought that this was coming. The Soviets at first didn't seem to think that the danger was especially insurmountable, but when there was another set of clashes in August, this time in a different corner on the border with Xinjiang, uh, the Soviets started creating signals that led the Chinese to believe that a nuclear strike uh, was actually possible, or even if not likely that they needed to prepare for it. So in early October, uh, there was a nuclear alert within China. The second artillery was even mobilized. And there was a fear, including by the defense minister Lin Biao, that this plane that included Soviet uh, negotiators would actually have a nuclear bomb on it. But what the new documents from the Soviet archives say is that uh, Moscow really actually hoped that the negotiations would be successful and, and gave a lot of leeway in terms of uh, flexibility to those negotiators in the hope that they would find some kind of an agreement. Joseph, to follow up on this, it seems like what you're saying is much of the Chinese perception of the Soviet Union then was driven by an extreme sense of heightened security concerns. And the threat that China was perceiving from the Soviet Union did not actually match what Soviet Union thought it was trying to convey or signal to China. Well, what's interesting about 1969 is that on the Soviet side, at least, there were curious parallels with June of 1941, right, where the Soviet political and military elite were not interpreting the signals that should have led them to understand that the Chinese might actually resort to violence. And in fact, they were so deeply concerned about escalation that they put extraordinary restrictions on Soviet border guards uh, so that things wouldn't get out of hand. And in fact, on March 15th, in 1969, when the Chinese were really savaging the Soviet border guards, uh, it took hours for permission to come to use a special new kind of rocket because of fears that escalation would, would get out of control. And it's still not exactly clear uh, who gave the order uh, to do that because there was there were such concerns about uh, responsibility and, and fears of uh, of escalation management. Uh, it does seem that Mao did not suspect that the Soviets would react as strongly as they did, especially uh, in August and September, and the nuclear fear was real. And the leadership in Beijing uh, was evacuated. As I said, the, uh, the nuclear forces were put on alert. But essentially, the negotiating team that, that, as I said, the Chinese thought was a ruse was actually coming to hope that they could find some kind of, some kind of an agreement. Joseph, you discussed Sino-Soviet cooperation and some of the factors that contributed to their subsequent split. As you reflect back on this early period, were there any factors that stand out to you as limiting China's ability to work with the Soviet Union during the heyday of their alliance? First of all, we see over 
the 1950s and early 1960s, Mao increasingly worried about Soviet influence within China. So the first great purge of the People's Republic of China of a man named Gao Gang, he, according to Mao, had provided intelligence to the Soviet Union in an inappropriate way. Uh, and then in 1959, Peng Dehuai, the defense minister, criticized the Great Leap Forward in a letter during the famous Lushan Plenum at around the same time that Khrushchev was making indirect criticisms of the Great Leap Forward, which led Mao to believe that the Soviets were getting involved in Chinese politics uh, in an inappropriate way. Then we saw Mao believing that the Soviet Union was not supporting China on crucial issues, for example, with regards to the skirmish with India in 1959, believing that Khrushchev was trying to improve relations uh, with the United States at the expense of China, this idea that negotiations with the West, especially on nuclear weapons, was a way of preventing China from developing its own nuclear forces. These were all issues that led Mao to believe that the relationship wasn't working for him. So despite the mass level of material support the Soviet Union provided China, there were still underlying levels of distrust between the two countries. And there was concern that the Soviet Union had too much influence over China. I think that's right. And especially in 1956, after the 20th Party Congress in the Soviet Union, when Khrushchev criticized Stalin, that's when Mao started to change how he characterized the relationship with the Soviet Union in terms of what China could learn. So it used to be that the idea was you could study everything from the Soviet Union and it would be directly applicable. But in 1956, Mao started to talk about how the Soviet Union should be used as uh, not so much as a model, uh, but as a place where lessons could be drawn that could no longer be considered as uh, always directly applicable in any situation. Thank you, Joseph. As much as I would like to discuss more of China-Soviet relations during the Cold War, I think it's important to move forward a bit on the timeline to understand present-day China-Russia relations. To get there, I'd love your views on how China-Russia relations evolved in the wake of the Soviet Union collapse, and where does the China-Russia relationship stand today? So after the Soviet Union collapsed, the leaders in Beijing were skeptical about Yeltsin as the individual who had played such a fundamental role in the collapse of you know, the first great communist state. And in the early 90s, it seemed that the Russian leadership was truly intent on a completely fundamentally different relationship uh, with the West. And as Mary Cerati's new book on U.S.-Russia relations in the 1990s shows, Yeltsin was talking about membership in NATO uh, so seriously that he was worried about the China reaction. But then, of course, over the 1990s, uh, U.S.-Russia relations deteriorated. China and Russia resolved their territorial disputes. They came to a series of agreements on nuclear weapons, such as not targeting each other and not being the first to use nuclear weapons against each other. The Russians started to sell extensive uh, military hardware to the Chinese. And now the Chinese and Russians describe their relationship in superlative terms, saying that uh, it's essentially everything but an alliance, but actually better than an alliance at the same time. So do you assess that China-Russia relations today is better than their relationship when they had a military alliance? Or do the historical memories and tensions make present-day China-Russia relations more complicated than depicted in PRC or Russian official media? 
Well, it's certainly the case that this complicated relationship left behind both positive and negative memories that exist uh, in Beijing and Moscow that could potentially be used for different purposes at different times. There has been a debate about whether the relationship between China and Russia is strengthened by ideological elements and whether or not that's similar to what was going on during the Cold War. What's interesting is that based on the research of people like the Chinese scholar Shen Zhihua or Thomas Christensen at Columbia University, is that ideology was not actually always something that strengthened ties between Beijing and Moscow during the Cold War. And part of the reason for that was the debates that happened between the two countries often took ideological form, which made it more difficult to manage those problems, but also because this drive for orthodoxy made it hard for them to come to an agreement about proper ideological responses to challenges facing them and the rest of the world. And then, as I was saying before, you know, Mao was this kind of person who didn't just see tactical differences as differences of opinion. He always looked for something different. And when he came to the conclusion that something had gone deeply wrong within the Soviet Communist Party uh, as an institution, that it had become revisionist, uh, it became really hard to manage other corners of the relationship as well. So do you agree that the current China-Russia relationship is better than their former military alliance? One of the reasons the alliance between China and the Soviet Union became so hard to maintain was on numerous occasions of tension between Beijing and another country or Moscow and another country they did not believe that their ally provided sufficient support. Or the other country thought that it was the fault of the other country that caused those problems in the first place. So that led to a feeling of betrayal uh, on the side of both China and Russia when the other side wasn't coming to help uh, when they thought that it was necessary to do so based on the parameters of that alliance. So by including flexibility in the relationship whereby it's not expected that China or Russia would always provide 100% support in every particular situation, that that flexibility and strategic autonomy might actually allow for the relationship to uh, be more robust. One thing an alliance would do would signal to the West that China and Russia are pursuing a fundamental new international order. That would make it harder for both China and Russia to cooperate with the West in the few areas that they do see as necessary and useful. But also, an alliance is the idea that you would help the other side in case of war. And I don't really think that either one of those countries feels that they need the other country to actually come to the other side's defense in case of, uh, of a shooting war. So in terms of you know, what the benefits of actually moving to an alliance would be based on, you know, what tensions might actually be caused by trying to act in such close conjunction. It's not immediately obvious to me that it would make sense for them to move in that direction. Just to clarify, when you're talking about support during the Cold War, you mentioned that both countries felt that the other did not support it enough. Are you talking about military support in particular or all types of support, including military, political, economic support? Sure. So, for example, in 1958, Khrushchev thought that it was deeply inappropriate for China to start a crisis with the United States without giving the Soviet Union a heads up. And in fact, Khrushchev was so distressed by this act that it led him to decide not to support the Chinese nuclear program. 
that he thought it would be too dangerous. And then in 1959, when the Soviet Union was essentially neutral during the skirmishes between China and India, uh, China did not see that as, as neutral. It saw that as uh, essentially being in support of the West. And these were you know, crucial moments that led to more distrust uh, between Moscow and Beijing on the road to, to the full split. And uh, of course, I can talk about other examples like the Cuban Missile Crisis. The Chinese criticized uh, Khrushchev for uh, first acting as an adventurist by putting the missiles there in the first place and then acting as a capitulationist afterwards. And this idea in China's mind that, you know, the Soviet Union was a status quo power that wanted to have better relations with the United States and that the top priority should be to avoid war, whereas China, which was not a status quo power that was not happy with the structure of the international order thought that it was necessary to be more aggressive with supporting revolutions throughout the world and, and not risking the, the ire of the West every time you made a particular choice. So that sort of counterintuitively made the alliance weaker because it made it seem like the two sides were not acting in the spirit of that alliance. Thank you, Joseph. I now want to switch gears a bit to discuss how Xi Jinping views Russia. Let's first look at the legacy of Xi's father. You have written extensively on Xi Jinping's father, Xi Zhongxun, and his ties to the Soviet Union. How did Xi Zhongxun view the Sino-Soviet relationship? What role did he play in relations between China and the Soviet Union? Xi Zhongxun, the father of Xi Jinping, was the Secretary of the State Council for much of the 1950s, sort of the right-hand man to Zhou Enlai, and a vice premier uh, by 1959. And part of his bailiwick included managing the Foreign Expert Bureau, managing the Soviet experts within the People's Republic of China. And we have some of the speeches he gave from Chinese archives where he talks about how uh, we need to listen to the Soviet experts 70% of the time. Uh, he also talked about how some Soviet experts were committing suicide because of how difficult the situations were and, and how problems like that should be managed so that they don't become too much of a uh, serious political pressure on the broader relationship. He visited the USSR in 1959 to study heavy industry in preparation for the second five-year plan. And he visited the mausoleum of Lenin and Stalin. In 1962, uh, Xi Jinping was purged from the leadership in one of the claims uh, against him was that he was a spy for the Soviet Union, that he had a document scanned by his secretary to turn over to the Soviets, which was seen by many as an outrageous claim, because if you were going to turn over secret documents, why would you use uh, a scanner and your own assistant uh, to do it? In 1980, when Xi Jinping was the party boss of Guangdong, he took a trip to the United States and by then he was expressing a, a very different opinion of the Soviet Union. He was talking about how the U.S. and China's uh, cooperation had an extremely important strategic meaning and that China and the United States needed to build up their forces enough such that there wouldn't be a moment when they needed to cho choose between war and uh, capitulation. According to one person who was on the trip, uh, Xi's concern about North American air defense's ability to defend the United States from Soviet nuclear weapons seemed to have been real. Xi Jinping was also in charge of uh, ethnic issues uh, during the 1980s. And in conversations with the Dalai Lama's representatives from Dharamsala, he criticized the Soviets for trying to enlist the Dalai Lama uh, in anti-Chinese activities. 
And then he also, interestingly enough, during the 1980s, his bailiwick including managing the so-called Liaison Bureau, which uh, managed China's relations with foreign communist parties. So he was uh, constantly in touch with uh, communist parties uh, from throughout the world. And part of that was managing China's continued competition with the Soviet Union for influence over them. That's a very colorful history. And it is interesting to hear that Xi Zhongxin's views on the Soviet Union changed dramatically over the years. How did his views shape then his son Xi Jinping's views toward Russia? Xi Jinping made a very interesting set of remarks to Russian Sinologists in March of 2013 during his very first trip overseas, which was to Russia. And he talked about how his father spoke glowingly of the Soviet Union after his trip there in 1959. And he said that sadly, although the pictures of the trip were destroyed during the Cultural Revolution, the mother still has the gifts uh, and treasures them. And Xi Jinping might have grown up watching a Soviet television because according to the Soviet archives, when Khrushchev visited China in 1959, uh, he brought a television as a gift uh, for, for Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping also said to those Russian Sinologists that his generation grew up under two literatures, Chinese and Russian literature. And he would have read Russian books at the August 1st Middle School, which was a school primarily populated by the children of high-ranking generals who fought during the revolution. And he also talked about how during the Cultural Revolution, there were these banned Russian novels that were handed to uh, sent-down youth who were exiled to the countryside, and how they were deeply inspiring to Xi Jinping. He talked in particular uh, about a book called What is to be Done, and a character in there named Rachmetov, who used to sleep on nails to build up his uh, revolutionary uh, dedication. And Xi Jinping said that when he was young, he studied this, this character from Russian literature and would walk around during snowstorms and rainstorms to build up his own willpower. And Xi Jinping told also these sinologists that a lot of people believe that his generation of Chinese leaders were oriented towards Western values, but that in fact, he knew a lot about Russia and knew a lot about Russian culture and had a lot of respect for Russian values. And uh, Xi Jinping has always been also a very strong student uh, of Soviet history. He's talked about how China's own revolution uh, was inspired by the USSR. Uh, and on multiple occasions, he's talked about how mistakes made by Soviet leaders led to Soviet collapse and that China should be very, very careful to learn from them to make sure that they don't make uh, similar mistakes. So now let me move to what has happened after Xi has come to power. And let's also unpack the Putin-Xi relationship. How do you see Xi Jinping's relationship with Vladimir Putin? And do you see any parallels between their relationship and the relationships that Xi Jinping's predecessors had with their respective Soviet or Russian counterparts? The closeness of the relationship between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin is a historical anomaly. That's definitely true. So for Mao and Stalin, Mao thought that Stalin was a great teacher. He deeply respected Stalin, but he also thought that Stalin had made a lot of mistakes, especially with regards to how he did or did not support the Chinese Revolution. But essentially, the way that they interacted with each other when they met each other, Mao was extraordinarily deferential. And then, of course, when Khrushchev came to power, this was an individual who had none of the revolutionary prestige that Mao had. Mao was a real titan of the communist movement, and Khrushchev was not one of the old comrades. He lacked the kind of cachet that uh, individuals like Molotov or Kaganovich had within the Russian 
leadership. And Mao, uh, in a lot of occasions, was Khrushchev just in terms of personal behavior was, was rather dismissive. Then for several decades, there were essentially no meetings between Russian and Chinese leaders. And then when Gorbachev visited Beijing of 1989, it was certainly a difficult moment because it was famously at the same moment that there were protesters in Tiananmen Square. And when Deng met Gorbachev, he lectured him uh, about all of the mistakes that uh, uh, the Soviet Union had made and also mentioned the fact that the unequal treaties between China and Russia during the 19th century were unfair. And it was really only in 1994 that the first trip by a Chinese leader um, to Moscow happened since 1957. So when it comes to Xi and Putin, these are individuals who have similar views of the West, this idea that uh, Western democracy uh, is not able to provide the needs of their peoples. They have similar views of history, sort of nostalgia for heroes from the Soviet and Chinese Communist Party history. And they had also similar sort of rough and tumble upbringings uh, when they were young boys and young men. Uh, but I think this is about more than individuals. And we have little reason to believe that either of them will leave soon. Uh, we also have little evidence that the most likely people that might ever replace them would, would think about the relationship differently. In the interest of time, I would like to wrap up by discussing how much history shapes the future of China-Russia relations. Are there lingering suspicions in Beijing about Moscow? and vice versa. Does Moscow harbor concerns about Beijing's ambitions in areas like Central Asia, where Russia has historically held more influence? You know, it's interesting. When you go to track two dialogues between the U.S. and Russia or the U.S. and China, the way that they talk about each other, especially in private conversations, is often very different from what you read in their public statements. So for example, I've heard Russians in track two talk about how uh, Russia is still a Western state and use language to characterize Chinese that sort of others them as Asian, uh, talking about how what China often says about its intentions uh, aren't necessarily believable. And then I've heard Chinese at uh, track two events say things like, well, look where we're sending our children. We're sending them to the United States to study. We're not sending them to Russia. Russia has always been inherently expansive. They started as Muscovy, which was only a city-state, and look how big they are now. And these people had uh, often grown up uh, during the Cold War, when during moments, as we were talking about before, when the relationship uh, was uh, extraordinarily fraught. And people-to-people -people relations uh, also sometimes lag behind the way that you know their leaders talk. There are nationalists in China who still talk about the unequal treaties and how Vladivostok and Abarovsk by rights should, should be Chinese. And at the beginning of COVID, the, the treatment of Chinese living in the Russian Federation uh, was criticized uh, by people in China as, uh, as too aggressive and unfair. At the same time, China and Russia have done a remarkably good job managing a lot of the areas of the relationship um, that might cause tension. So very often... People talk about Central Asia, right, as, as one of the key places that might lead to tension in the relationship. But the Belt and Road Initiative out of China and the Eurasian Economic Union out of Russia have actually apparently not caused as much friction as one might suspect. And, and Putin has even talked about finding ways to, to make sure that those, those two plans uh, don't cause trouble for one another. Thanks, Joseph. Let me ask one final question to close out this podcast. Some have described the strengthening China-Russia relationship as a marriage of convenience. Would you say this is an accurate description, or do you think the country's interests are much more convergent than that? 
Well, it's certainly not a marriage of inconvenience. There are lots of forces that are pushing China and Russia together that can't be changed anytime soon. In terms of economics, uh, Russia wants Chinese investment. China wants uh, natural resources from the Russian Federation. Uh, we don't see any sign of an improvement in relations between the U.S. and Russia or the U.S. and China, which is, of course, another driver of pushing them together. We see voices in both China and Russia calling for an alliance. We've seen Putin saying that an alliance is actually possible. We've seen that Russia is apparently helping China with developing an early warning system for uh, nuclear weapons. But at the same time, we have to remember that these discussions of a possible alliance are a very useful scare tactic that can be used um, towards uh, the United States and that there are still serious tensions like espionage that goes on between the two countries. I think that both sides don't want to feel like they are obligated to put their own interests at risk when the other country does something in their near periphery that they see as uh, either destabilizing or affecting their own interests in those particular places. China obviously is the more powerful partner in the China-Russia relationship. And whether or not the Chinese start to believe that they can get more out of Russia than the Russians want to actually give, uh, that could lead to uh, some tensions in the relationship as well. In terms of whether an alliance is, is, is next or not, as, as I was saying before, uh, that would be a big step, uh, and it would signal you know, a drive to really change the international order and would make it harder for both sides to work with, with the West to the extent that they might want to or is even possible. Thank you very much for joining us, Joseph. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. <laughs>